This week on Punch Mountain, what would you do for $100 million? If you're international terrorist Eric Quaylen, you'll do just about anything, except master a British accent. Double check that harness clip because we're watching Cliffhanger. Punch Mountain starts now. Hello and welcome to Punch Mountain. The podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies. Not determined by us, but by the action gods themselves. We don't make the mountain, we just climb it, baby. I regret saying baby. My name is Mac Blake. I am joined, as always, by my better half, David Hada. Hold on, I'm getting a text message from my wife. She's not happy. Oh, baby, come on. <laughs> she also didn't like that. David Hada, <laughs> how the hell are you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Looking forward to doing Cliffhanger today. How are you doing, Mac Blake? Uh, I'm also doing good. I love uh, cliffs. I love hanging off of them. I love cliff bars. So this movie is, uh, is, is right up my alley. See, let's talk about it, David. Cliffhanger, just what's, what are your initial thoughts here? Your knee-jerk reactions, your cliff-jerk reactions. Mac, this is the reason movies are made in the 1990s. It really feels like <laughs> this movie is all spectacle. Well, it's not all spectacle. It's also some terrible script, but it's mostly spectacle. It, this movie exists in a world before drones and before IMAX, before you could just go on YouTube and look up a video of a Majestic Vista in 4K. Like you had to pay $7 to go to the theater and watch a plane fly close to another plane or watch a mountain view. This is kind of what it must have felt like in the early days of movies when they had that movie where the train came at you and everybody ran out of the theater and there was a big massacre. It was coming right at me. Yeah, that's right. Of course. It was a real train. So this is sort of the 90s version of that. People felt like, oh, no, I'm short of breath because I'm on this mountain. Uh, so that's very exciting to sort of relive this moment in movie history. Uh, what are your thoughts about this movie going into it, Mac? Yeah, I know what you're saying, David, because now if you want to see somebody do a feat of daring do when it comes to like mountaineering or climbing or whatever, you can get on Instagram or TikTok and there's some, probably a Russian dude, <laughs> climbing up uh a building, you know, free solo style or whatever, like no harness. And he's like, hey, look, I'm uh, uh, I'm holding on the Eiffel Tower with just uh, my pinky finger. Ha ha ha, fuck me. And then he lives or dies. He, he probably lives because we were watching the video. It, it's not as like, whoa, as, as it might have been in the 90s. And when I say it, I mean cliffhanger. But yeah, I thought this movie was super fun. It was easy, breezy movie. It didn't really bog us down with too much of anything. <laughs> and I'll say this, David, it, it, it also finally a movie that makes extreme sports look bad. You know what I mean? Sure, yeah. Extreme sports get like so fetishized in, in movies. Like, in order to be a bank robber, point break style, you got to be able to jump out of a plane, bitch. In this movie, it's like the people doing the extreme, like base jumping, they don't necessarily look awesome. Very no. quickly, people die. And so it's not, you don't leave being like, man, I wish that was me. What a life. You leave this theater being like, this is, people are dying. Stop. You need to stop this. Well, I'm also thinking like, because, you know, the heroes of this movie are like federal employees. They're like just park rangers, basically. And it's like, I don't know if I want to be, a, I don't know if I want to do this job. This seems more dangerous than I was signing up for. So John Litgow is also in this movie, which I was excited to watch it partially for him. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd seen this movie before, but not in a while. I was like, oh yeah, John Litgow's in this. I can't wait to see Litgow choose some scenery. You talked about it up top. Are, were you excited to see Lithgow? I was. I was in the same boat that you were. I was excited to see John Lithgow unhinged. I wanted to see him just chew some scenery, but apparently on Cliffhanger, uh, he decided to go on a diet. And he left a lot of scenery untouched, or he kind of had a problem chewing it. Uh, this was a, uh, 
a very disappointing Lithgow, unfortunately. We can we'll get into that throughout the show. I mean, it is crazy because I mean, he was a bad guy, like an evil fucking bad guy in the movie Ricochet. He was three years removed from Third Rock from the Sun. So three years later, he's basically like just you know a clown on Third Rock from the Sun. And so I was expecting, yeah, a little bit more out of Lithgow. Also, I think Stallone is fine in this movie. He's fun. But I, for some reason, just never quite buy into him as a, you know, a rock jock. There's something that we should call it the Stallone paradox, where mm-hmm. by casting St- Sylvester Stallone or a Sylvester Stallone type in your movie, you condition the audience to be okay with murder. Because, like, you know, again, the heroes of this movie are rescue rangers or whatever. And the way they go about just, like, murdering these terrorists... I'm okay with it because it's Sylvester Stallone, but if this was like an everyman, like a Philip Seymour Hoffman or something, and he was mowing down terrorists, I think this would be a completely different and maybe more fun movie. Well, I think Stallone, you know, he's not a Schwarzenegger or a Tom Cruise type where he can't just be, he can't just be like that all-American perfect superhero. Stallone's a little bit more idiosyncratic. And and so I, I don't know if this movie... I wouldn't say it like uses him poorly, but I just don't necessarily buy him. But I kind of like how calm and understated he is in this movie because he's not Stallone is not chewing scenery, which I, I think is good. There's no Stallone grimacing or anything like that. Yeah, I'm with you. On yeah, that. there's no like you know whatever. The like you you draw a picture of the Stallone cactus or whatever that is, or was it was some sort of Stallone vegetable? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it was like a zucchini or something like that. Or yeah, like a we'll squash. put it in our socials. Yeah, <laughs> you'll see it. You'll see it on the social. Hey, real quick, Dave, before we go any farther, we got to clear up some uh, controversy or some controversy, if you will. Oh my gosh, yes, of course. So when we announced that we we're doing this movie Cliffhanger, our socials blew up by a lot of people just being like, this is horse shit. Punch Mountain doing an action movie about a mountain. Clearly, they're going to rank this. Number one, it's mountain favoritism. David lives in Denver, Colorado. Mountain time. The mountain is nothing but impartial, guys. Punch Mountain itself does not give a shit about that, okay? You you insult it by even, by even thinking about it. Okay? Yeah. I mean, again, we're just reporting what the mountain has already decided. It doesn't matter that uh, Patagonia sent me a box of carabiners. I'm, I'm not going to do anything with this information, all right? There's no controversy. Yeah, it's it's that's the a, a beauty of the show. It's not my opinion. It's not David's opinion. It is... The incorruptible crag itself, Punch Mountain. Okay, David, hey, before we're forced by terrorists to climb a mountain in search of suitcases full of $1,000 bills, okay, let's climb a mountain of friendship in search of answers to questions like, David Hada, how you doing for real now? Cut your nicey-nice bullshit. Let's fucking get into it. I'm turning my chair around. I'm turning my hat backwards. (laughs) Oh, no. That's right. I'm spilling some truths, and the truth is I'm doing great. We're heading into low winter sun territory. It's all outerwear season. Never saw that AMC show, but I... Uh... Uh, I'm all about sweaters. I'm all about coats right now. I'm wearing a hoodie to bed, uh, which is... And eh, maybe there's something wrong with the insulation in this house. But other than that, it's uh, it's wintertime. It's cozy season, Mac, and I'm living uh, it up. Hell yeah. Cozy time. The best time of the year. Uh, David, I'm doing great. I recently went on a trip with uh, my son and my feral wife. We were flying back. It was a great trip. And we're flying back home, and there's a uh, a dog boarding place by the airport here called Bark and Zoom. And it's kind of a playoff of Park and Zoom, which is the Austin airport's like park plus shuttle service, where you can park in this garage, and I'll shuttle you to the airport. Anyway, so Bark and Zoom, you know, they pick us up after we get off the plane, and they're driving us to the place where we can pick up our doogie, our dog. The guy driving the shuttle, a little bit of a character. <laughs> oh, boy. And at some point, he's like, what kind of dog you got? 
and we're like, oh, we got a, a, a Mitchell Schnauzer. He's like, oh, me too, Mitchell Schnauzer. And uh, his name was Trisket. He was like telling the story. It was a lot of fun for a while. And then he was like, oh, yeah, but Trisket, you know, she got was blind and deaf at the end and, and couldn't really, you know what? I, I'd tell you more, but she got a little one in the car. David, I've never, I've never been happier to have a kid, David, than when I was like, oh, my son, who I love more than anything, has now also spared me from hearing like the extended cut of your dog's death. You know, the phrase human shield gets bandied about uh, too casually these days, but in this moment, your son was the perfect human shield. Hey, David, speaking of mountain time, is it time to do the thing we do? My friend, I think we're going in. David, so what is your history with Cliffhanger? This is the first time you're seeing this, right? This is my first time seeing it in a long time, perhaps, since, if I remember correctly, since opening night, 1993, saw it at the Commerce Park Gate. And this movie was like Kaiser Soze. It it came in, it told a good story, and then it was gone forever. Like, I knew this movie existed. I knew it was on cable into perpetuity. But like one, it was a one and done movie for me. It was like, I saw it, file it away, and never revisit it. David, you surely look up uh, the actor who played Kaiser Soze. Maybe that's not a, such a fun reference. Hey, you saw a lot of movies opening night. Like, some of it was like high school, David, but this... You know, not to give away your age, but you were, were you in high school when this movie came out? I don't think so. No, this was middle school, but this was a summer release. So you were still there every, did you see it by yourself? I can't remember if I saw this with my brothers or my mom or a combination thereof. Who was like your main movie going partner? It, either or. It was either my brothers or my mom or a combination thereof. My mom was really awesome about taking me to movies. We saw Fargo together, as a matter of fact. Nice. You know, my dad was sort of like my go-to action movie partner. And I don't think he was letting me see R-rated movies at this point yet. So I saw uh, this movie on cable a bunch. But the other weird thing that I did, because I, I grew up in San Antonio, and the the newspaper there, uh, the San Antonio Times, Picayune, it published like every Monday the weekend's box office gross. And, you know, like the, the top 10 of the box office. And so I was like started really paying attention to that for some reason. And I, I uh, whoever decided to put box office mojo behind a paywall, seriously, go fuck yourself. What? To get all the categories or whatever. Yeah. Like you used to be able to go to box office mojo, click on Sylvester Stallone, and then you get some complete movie grosses. But trust me, we'd be playing so many boring movie gross games that were super fun for me and you, but just <laughs> tedious for the audience to listen to if that wasn't the case. Damn it. So for that reason, I was kind of aware of the fact that this was like Stallone's like last big hit. Okay. Like, even, like, 15-year-old me was like, oh, Stallone really hasn't uh, had a big one since Cliffhanger. Because <laughs> he didn't really, like, top this movie until Expendables 1. It was it had been a while. Uh, so, David, you got a box there, the movie, the movie box? I do. Just a level set here. Can you read the back of the box description of this thing? What, hold on, real quick. What is edition of the movie is that? It's a bungee-sponsored Cliffhanger. So it's a little VHS package. And then if you just drop it from a certain height, look at that. Yay! Oh, my goodness. That's really yeah. good. I... I got the TriStar uh, Hang On edition of this movie, oh. which, yeah, it came complete with a carabiner and also uh, delivered by Michael Rooker himself. Wow, Yondu? <laughs> yeah, TV's Yondu. That's right. <laughs> TV's. All right. Let's go with the back of the box here. Sarah was an inexperienced climber. She trusted Gabe to rescue her, but something went wrong high above the valley floor. No interruptions, please. Sylvester Stallone, John Lithgow, Michael Rooker, Janine Turner, and Ralph Waite star in this high-altitude avalanche of action, a non-stop adventure peaked with suspense and capped with heartquaking terror. 
For Rocky Mountain Rescue, the mission is almost routine. Locate five climbers. With the woman he loves, Turner, and his best friend, Rooker, Gabe Walker, Stallone, braves the icy peaks only to discover that the distress call is really a trap set by merciless international terrorist Eric Quaylen Lithgow. Now millions of dollars and their own lives hang in the balance. Against explosive firepower, bitter cold, and dizzying heights, Walker must outwit Quaylen in a deadly game of hide-and-seek. Spectacular, heart-thumping, throat-tightening, pulse-pounding, sweaty palm suspense, American movie classics. 1993, 113 minutes, directed by Rennie Harlan, rated R. Rennie Harlan, he made, he made Cutthroat Island. Adventures of Fort Fairlane's Rennie Harlan, you bet. Wow, holy shit, David. Was that the novelization you just read? So in finding the back of the box for this one, it reminds me that the video store experience was an experience. Like, you could spend an hour at a video store on a Friday night reading the backs of boxes, trying to figure out the perfect movie. So, like, god damn it, living in the context of now where we don't need any of this. and it, <laughs> Yeah. And it starts off with Sarah. I feel like that's a bit of a misdirect I for know, someone she's coming. Like <laughs> barely in this movie, like Sarah. Oh, this must be the most important character in this thing. Whoever wrote this, not to, uh, you know, there's a lot you could dunk on here, but I'll give them some credit. They they nailed these uh, this this language. High altitude avalanche of action, a nonstop adventure peaked with suspense and heartquaking terror. Oh, does this take place in a mountain? Good job, copywriter. <laughs> I, I seriously would love to read Erotica by whoever wrote this. I just think it would be amazing. All right, let's get into this thing. So movie opens. We see that beautiful TriStar logo, the horse running with the animated wings. like the Oh, I said unicorn in my notes, but it's a Pegasus. Oh, sure it is. Yeah. Well, fun fact. Do you know the, the, the real horse there? You know the story behind it? No, I don't. That horse was actually won in a bed later by super movie producer Robert Evans. How about that? He claimed to have sex on the back of that horse so many times the horse died. Robert Evans. He, he broke that horse's back by fucking. <laughs> yeah, he blew that horse's back out. Yeah, he sure did. And then next we get the other main production company here. Is it, Do you say Carolco or do you say Carolco? I say Carolco. But yeah, that was, man, uh, another old friend seeing the Carolco pictures. It reminded me of like, wow, what were the movies that I that I saw Carolco in front of, you know, like, cause it brings back a lot of good memories. So I opened up the Wikipedia of the releases for Carolco pictures. I'm not going to run through them all, but it really is. It just reads like a who's who of the movies that like your uncle gave you after he repossessed somebody's car. And it was like, Hey, they forgot to return iron Eagle too. So here you go. You want a copy of that? You want a copy of uh, Johnny handsome? There you go. It's all yours champ. So, uh, yeah. Carolco is really like the thinking man's canon films. You know what I mean? It really, they're going for award <laughs> season on these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to end up on the Fangoria's top 10 list. <laughs> Not you, Cannon. Eat shit. So we go from the production cards to the opening shot. Beautiful mountains. We see an opening shot of uh, of a stunt person. We'll assume that's our hero. We'll assume that's Gabe Walker uh, climbing underneath the cliff. We see some credits uh, where we're starting to see, you know, directed by, written by, that sort of thing. And we see that this movie was based on a premise by John Long. Yeah, it was like... Screen story by Michael France or whoever, screenplay Francis Stallone. But yeah, based on a premise by John Long. This is the first time I've ever seen based on a premise. I've never seen that credit before. I was going to ask you that because based on a premise, good work if you can get it, my man. You know what I mean? How do I get that job? Just throwing out premises. That opening shot of the person hanging, like climbing underneath the cliff. Uh, when I saw I watched this the first time, I was like, oh, that's a real person doing that real thing. The second time I was like, oh, I think that's like green screened the background. Do you have a take on that? 
I, if I remember correctly, there's a few there's a few shots like this throughout the movie where they did kind mm. of a a, a mat, you know, where he's mm-hmm. interacting with a small piece, and then they sort of mat the the background behind him. Uh, you'll see it okay. again when he's like climbing the side, uh, like the face of the mountain, that sort of thing, and they zoom out, and it's just this giant face of the mountain. They do it in that, and I think they do it in this opening part. The thing is, is when I first saw it, I just assumed it was real and I already didn't care, <laughs> which I think, again, you know, if you saw this in the 90s, maybe there would have been more uh, wow factor. But it's like, uh, Tom Cruise the other day, like, you know, he uh, hanged by a toenail off the International Space Station. So it's like, I'm, I'm just a jaded, I'm a jaded, uh, you know, dude living in 2022 at this point. It's very quaint. So we go from that. We <laughs> <laughs> yeah, real, real cottagecore movie, that cliffhanger. Yeah. Uh, so we find out why why Gabe Walker is hanging around. That's the name of Sylvester Stallone's character. It's because he's in the middle of a tower rescue. He's going up to save uh, his buddy Hal Tucker, played by Michael Rooker, in a rare non-scumbag role. Hey, hey. Yeah, so, uh, so Hal Tucker has re-injured his knee at the top of this... Uh, big mountain called the tower and now he and his girlfriend sarah played by michelle joiner are stuck at the peak of this impossible climb and it's up to gabe and his uh, co-worker turned girlfriend jesse played by the pride of fort worth texas janine turner and dog turned human frank played by ralph Waite. Uh, it's up to them to rescue hal and sarah so first of all david this movie like many movies before it and many after has music in it mm-hmm. yes it does what are your thoughts when you hear this score by trevor jones uh, my first thought when I heard it was, what the fuck is this? Like, this was the most majestic. You would have thought it was the opening to Ben-Hur or something. And there's parts in this movie where it feels like Return of the Jedi. Like, I'm like, Trevor Jones, who the fuck are you? What do you think you're doing in Cliffhanger <laughs> right now? What, were you, what did you think of this music? Well, I heard it and I was like, oh, this music's good. And then it's sort of its main, I'm not a music guy. It's, it's main sort of like refrain or whatever you call it. It starts one way and then um, and then it goes, you know, it plays some different notes. But like that first part, I was like, wait, this sounds so familiar. And I had it in my head, like, what, what does this sound like? And it wasn't until like much later on that I was like, oh, it sounds like the last of the Mohicans theme. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then I looked it up and guess who wrote the last of the Mohicans theme? Trevor fucking Jones. I was like, holy shit. I've never heard a dude rip off his own work <laughs> that hard. It's amazing. I, I'll remember it now. So this whole effort by Stallone, Gabe, Janine Turner, Jesse, and Ralph Waite, Frank, they're going up there to save, you know, Michael Rooker, who's Hal Tucker and, and Sarah. They're up there, like, just kind of lounging around on this, like, I- impossible peak. How they got up there is, like, mind-blowing. It's like no one should be able to climb up there. What do you get from Sarah and Hal? What is the what's going on with them? Okay, so as this conversation progresses, you know, as they're getting ready to, you know, as they're setting up for the rescue, we find out or we get the sense that like Hal and Sarah are just casually dating. Am I correct in assuming this? Because like they're not in a relationship, they're not married. Like this feels like a third or fourth date that they're on. Yeah, you don't get the vibe that they're like super close. Yeah, for sure. So on their third or fourth date, or let's say a non-relationship date, Hal convinces his girlfriend to climb this impossible climb because he's this experienced climber. But he also, as we come to find out, has a bad knee and he knew that. So immediately, is Hal the villain in this movie? Because I'm already rooting against him actively for causing all of this trouble for everybody. 
she doesn't seem like she's prepared for this big of a climb. Like they have zero gear pretty much. And even later on, Jesse Janine Turner says, a girl who can barely climb. Yeah. How the fuck did they get up there? Why the fuck did they get up there? But here comes Gabe, Sylvester Stallone, in to rescue them. And there's some banter between these two alphas, right? Gabe and Hal. And they're like, oh, yo, I'll let you rescue me this time or whatever. And Sylvester Stallone or Gabe calls Hal Captain Hot Tub at some point. Which, David, I don't seek out nicknames. But if you ever want to start calling me Captain Hot Tub, I'll take it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So uh, there's a little bit of like, hey, if you're going in for that rescue, don't use a winch because the winds are too high. And Janine Turner's like, you got it. We're going to. We're going to basically make our own zip line and we'll like scurry across it. Tucker scurries across it successfully, but now it's Sarah's turn. And Sarah's not an experienced climber, as we've established. And so she's like real scared. And uh, Gabe is like, you're doing great, Sarah, or whatever. But then, David, her gear starts to come apart in like a series of close-ups of just, uh, I don't know, like belts sliding out of buckles. Oh, there's a there's a great line. I'll tell you what, you know, this script is the script is what it is. But the lines that it makes Stallone say, like, I think in this instance, he points like very, you know, dramatically. He goes, that clip's not going to hold. And I'm like, God bless you for making Stallone have to sell lines like that clip's not going to hold. I completely forgot something, David. Right before Sarah begins her scurry across, you know, an open chasm, right? She gives Sylvester Stallone a big mouth kiss. And what do you think about that? Because I know that some some people, you know, just being friendly will kiss on the mouth. That seems disgusting to me. But she did this right in front of her, in theory, you know, her boyfriend or whatever, Hal. Was it just she's like, I, I might die here. I just need to, you're obviously more of a, more of the alpha here, Gabe. I'm going to just cook Hal real quick before I, I go to what might be my last moments of my life. I think she slipped. I think that was a moment of panic because her life feels like it's in danger. So it is that kind of, you know, the plane's going down. So let's try to, you know, hook up one last time thing. I think she sort of panicked and like acted on this impulse she's had all along to kiss Gabe. And so she's so mortified. She's like, oh my God, I wish I was dead right now. And her wish is about <laughs> oh, to come no, true. David. Oh no. <laughs> so she scurries out there and her gear is coming loose. And Hal was like, let me do something. I don't remember his fucking plan. But uh, Stone's like, I'm going to go get her. And Hal's like, that line won't hold two people. Oh, I'll, I'll tell you what his plan was, as a matter of fact. Yeah, so so Gabe's going to- you say he, you mean Hal's, Hal's plan? plan? yes. Okay. So Gabe's going to go out there and like grab, him, grab Sarah himself and pull her up, that yeah. kind of thing. Hal's brilliant fucking idea is I'll I'll throw my harness out there. Sarah can reach up and grab that, and at least she's got a, a sturdy harness to hold on to. Keep in mind, she's already dangling from the one that's breaking. So Hal's idea is like, eh, let her figure it out. No, thank you, Hal. Yeah, in fact, it's not what ends up doing her in, like her arm strength, right? Because Stallone does get there in time. You know, her she's falling, but oh, right before she falls, he reaches out, grabs her arm. God, it's a thrilling sequence. But then he can't, she dies because they can't hold on to each other. And I got to say, effective scene, like, I think this this opening scene was probably like the scene of the movie, to be honest with you. She acted the hell out of that. In fact, I'm going to give her credit one more time. That's going to be Michelle Joyner. Like, she had five minutes in that movie. She made the most out of that five minutes. She does fall to her death uh, after slipping out of Gabe's hand. And so Gabe has to watch her fall all the way down. Now, David... There's another character here, Frank, we, we talked about. He's the guy, he's not piloting the helicopter. That's uh, Jesse's job. Mm-hmm. But Frank is just like an old dude who's just kind of like, he's one of the rescue rangers, I guess. I don't know if he's Chip or Dale. But the entire time when they're like 
you know, holding the rope and hugging all this stuff, and she's falling to her death. Frank is smiling with <laughs> this insane smile. And maybe he wasn't trying to do it on purpose. Like uh, I, Bill Hader was talking about when he was on the uh, filming It Part Two, mm-hmm. that the director was like, Hey, you're when you look scared, you're like not making a scared face. Like your scared face like looks like you're laughing or having fun. Maybe like Frank's like, you know, like his I'm terrified face is just like a uh, sleazy grin, but that's what it fucking was. We might actually, I might actually post the face because uh, it's it's insane. Well, it's funny you mention that because there's moments throughout this movie where I feel the same way about Jesse, about Janine Turner, where it's it almost feels like the actors themselves are having such a blast that they can't hide the joy on their faces. And I think Ralph Wade's just like happy to be on a set. He's just like motion pictures, yay! But Ralph Wade got one of those like special credits. Like he was like Ralph Wade as Frank was his, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Post-title credit there, so his agent did a good job. Anyway, she falls to her death. Uh, so now we informed via the superimposed text that is now eight months later, right? You know, Gabe, he was unsuccessful with his attempt to rescue Sarah, so he leaves. And then now we are, uh, we're we're in Denver, the Denver Mint, right? And we see the shipment of $100 million in uncirculated $1,000 bills is being shipped from Denver Mint to San Francisco for movie reasons. And in charge of this operation is Treasury agent Richard Travers, played by, hey, it's that guy, Rex Lynn, <laughs> who I say, hey, it's that guy, because as soon as I saw him, I was like, hey, it's that guy, right? Uh huh. He played a bank manager in Better Call Saul for a bunch of seasons that like uh, Kim Wexler mm-hmm. was working with. And I was like, oh, that dude. Do you know who he's dating in real life, David? No. Rex Lynn and Reba fucking McIntyre. Shut are a up. Yeah. It's a new love, David. It's only from 2020, according to the internet. That's a, Oh, that's a pandemic love, then. Here at Punch Man, we love to celebrate new love. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'll creep myself out. Anyway, Rex Lynn, who was uh, knocking boots with Reba McIntyre, is asked by Agent Walter Wright, which his credit is special appearance by Paul Warfield, <laughs> to allow obvious traitor FBI agent Matheson to hitch a ride with them. And Travers obliges, even though this last-minute edition Matheson is obviously going to fuck him because it's super suspicious. But I love this good old-fashioned Aaron Sorkin walk and talk. We just get a nice little exposition dump in the hallways. It's like, we learn all about these bills. We learn all about why they're such a big deal. Yeah, because they're not for circulation, David. They're only for, like, international money exchanges. And, like, man, in the time before digital banking, this must have been something. It's like, yeah, we got to print up this money for use for only, like, eight people in the world. Now, David, let me ask you this. You currently live in Denver, right? That's correct, yes. I know that you are a big fan of the U.S. Treasury Department, and you are well aware that the Denver Mint is only used to make coins and not paper bills. Were you able to get past that factual inaccuracy or did it ruin the movie for you? Well, you know, I wrote the letter to the mint and I think that's all I needed to do. I didn't mail it. I just, it felt good to kind of get my frustrations out. Honestly. Was the frustration, how dare you let your name be tarnished by this or Hey, start making money. Hey, start making money. (laughs) Okay. So you like cliffhanger so much. Yeah. The reality needs to change to match the movie. I was mad that it's been 29 years and we still haven't had any movement on the thousand dollar bills. Okay. That's not, that sounds great. Now, Travers here, he's like, yeah, oh, he's, he's telling uh, obvious trader Agent Matheson, he's like, yeah, we never lost a bill on one of these trips, which, oh my God, fucking, does no one respect the jinx gods anymore? You never say never like that. It guarantees you're going to lose a bill. 
And he does ironically later in the movie. Well, these agents are just, you know, they are a superstitious lot, as special appearance by Paul Warfield explains. But Travers is laying it on so thick, the jinxes and like the giveaways that he, like he even says, you know, at some point they're walking and talking. And they say, well, yeah, we wouldn't do this on, on you know, by car. We, did, we didn't do this by train. We're going to do this in the plane because no one will get you in a plane. And it's like this. You guys are setting up a recipe for disaster right now. Oh, boy. So now we finally see what Gabe is up to, right? Yeah. Meanwhile, we go to Gabe. He's headed back to, to Jesse's place uh, after several months inexplicably away. Uh, he's going to go pick up the rest of his things, including Jesse. And on the way, he dumps some exposition onto two ex-gamers, uh, Evan and Brett. They're driving in a separate car. And there's a moment when when Gabe's driving along the road and, the, you know, Evan and Brett pull up behind him. The way Gabe panics, it's some of the best acting I've seen Stallone do. And it made me think, <laughs> does he think the movie is starting now? Does he think the movie is, oh, I'm being terrorized by two teens. It was really something. Now, when these uh, two ex-game dudes like Evan and Brett, like they're they're talking to Gabe. They're using so much triggering language. <laughs> He's like, Gabe, where you been? Did you fall off the planet, planet, planet? And then they're like, you got to come with us, Gabe. Today's going to be a day for a killer jump. Killer jump. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. It's like, dude, Gabe, you should come. It's going to be as much fun as dropping a woman to her death, death, death. But yeah, Stallone uh, tells every, tells Evan and Brett everything that's going on, talks to them like he's right there in the car with them, and then he's on his way to Jesse's. So Gabe pulls up to Jesse's place, and Jesse greets him as Gabriel. Uh-oh, not a good sign. Gabriel, what's his last name? Hart? Uh, Walker. Gabriel Walker, you go to your room this instant. Gabriel implores Jesse to leave this life behind, or not, right? Because he's leaving either way. Jesse implores Gabe to just fucking get over the death of Sarah already. Jeez, because it wasn't your fault. I don't have a hand on their relationship at all. Like, I have no feel for it. And I was like, because they haven't seen each other in eight months. They live together. And he just like rolls up after, I guess, you know, ostensibly not seeing this dude forever. And she's just like, hello, Gabriel, or whatever. Like, uh, And then it's like, do they still love each other, like each other? I just I couldn't get a feel for it. They they must love each other, or Jesse must love him to put up with him just vamoosing for eight months, where she's like, you know what? He's going through a lot. He's processing some grief. I guess I'll see him when I see him. But yeah, could not get a handle on this relationship at all. Because when he comes back, you think it would be a bigger thing, but she was just like, oh, hello, Gabriel. Like, you know, it just, uh, I was like, uh, hey, love him or hate him. I think it'd be a bigger deal. Well, it's funny you say that because she has a line uh, during this exchange where she's trying to empathize and she's like, you know, there were times where I didn't know whether to love you or to hate you, but I know one thing. I understand you. <laughs> That's tough. That's some tough talk. There. I, uh, at that moment I checked my watch and I was like, okay, we got hour 35 left of this. Let's, uh, let's consider that a warning. If I get any more dialogue like that, we're out of this movie. So we go from this scene, we check in on the plane real quick. Everything's fine. And then we see Jesse and why the plane? I mean the plane with the federal agents and the thousand dollar bills. Then Jesse goes back to the ranger station where we get further evidence that Frank is a fucking lunatic. Yeah. So we go into the rescue station and Frank is painting on a pane of glass. Uh, so this mm -hmm. is where we find out that Frank is this painter. He's exploring his artistic side and he's painting what ends up being, he explains, a banana eating a monkey. Because we've always seen monkeys eating bananas. We've never seen this. Mac, what the fuck is going on with Frank? 
You know, it'd be one thing, David, if the art was good and we could clearly see that, but it's pretty much just smudges. Like, honestly, I think that uh, that uh, gorilla that murdered all those kittens, Coco, I think Coco could honestly paint better than this. And the fact that he's doing it, like you said, a pane of glass right in the middle of their office. Look, David, I love slacking off at work, right? Who doesn't? I've never stopped working in my office to go paint right in the middle of it. Like, hey, Mac, uh, you got those TPS reports? And I'm like, oh, hold on a second. I'm uh, I'm working on it right now. Mac, you're clearly painting. I figure the, the trauma of his experiences are so severe that the ranger station has allowed him to drop everything and paint through his trauma. Oh, okay. That's really cool. That's really cool of them. I'm on board. Because, Mac, I don't know if you know this. He comes from Russia. And back in his mother Russia, mm -hmm. banana eat you. Oh, interesting. So, So he's got to process that. So then from Frank's nightmares, we cut back to the plane headed to San Francisco. Uh, we discover Hieronymus Bosch. Hieronymus Bosch had no talent. Like, or if instead of fingers, he just had like a mop to smudge things on with. Anyway, please go ahead. So on the plane to San Francisco, we cut back to it. We discover that old lever never lost to Bill Travers is actually the one hijacking the plane. Twist. And he's stealing the $100 million and not the obvious hijacker, Agent Matheson. So that's a good on you movie. You got me, movie, you son of a bitch. This is, this is going to be my first markout moment in this sequence. Because, yeah, when you reveal twist on twist on twist where you, you clearly think it's going to be Matheson. It's not Matheson. It's Travers. But nobody else is in cahoots with Travers. Like, he shoots Bruce McGill. I thought I was. I thought Bruce McGill was going to be my ride or die through this movie. I thought I was like, I can't wait to see him have a have a heel turn. I can't wait to see him have a face turn. I can't wait to see this movie be about Bruce McGill. And he gets shot. And I was like, wow, there's a lot of twists. And then they cut to the cockpit, and the pilot shoots the co-pilot. And I marked out first mark out moment for me. Wait, your so your mark out moment was the the pilot shooting the other guy. It was the culmination of the of the sequence. Yeah, because it was like. Whoa, what, what, what? And before I could even catch my breath, the pilot just ba-boom. And uh, yeah, no, that was the one for me. Yeah, uh, right. Honestly, same. That was my first markup moment. <laughs> it's because Matheson looks out the window and he he already noticed another plane was out there. But then he looks down and it's still there. And he just turns to the other agents and he goes, we're being tracked, which I thought was pretty cool. Because like the fact that like another plane is hunting you, whoa, this movie has it all. But yeah, when I saw Bruce McGill in the background of an earlier shot, I'm like, oh, look out, everyone. That dude is definitely shady character actor Bruce McGill. He's going to be a bad guy. But yeah, he gets blown away. And then you see that like Travers is by himself and he's shooting everyone. And then the co-pilot is like, what's going on back there? They're robbing everyone. And then the other pilot who you think is just playing it straight, he does turn around, shoot him in the head. And after he shoots him, he gives him this look of disgust. <laughs> like, fuck you, disgust me, you stupid idiot. That look combined with the, it was just like the, because <laughs> right, it was so fast. There's no, he didn't already have the gun in his hand, right? <laughs> because if you're being a pilot, you don't, you're not having a, sitting with a gun on your lap, but yeah. he had that gun so fast and he shot him and then he gave him that look. I also totally marked out. It was a mark out yeah. moment for me as well. <laughs> so fun fact during this robbery, which here we go is our first action sequence, Skyway robbery. That whole thing was part of it. Here comes the other plane, right? It's carrying a band of international terrorists wearing by Eric Quaylen, uh-oh, John Litgow. And they pull off a move we call the Bane Rescue. That's right. One plane uh, basically extracts the contents of another plane. Yeah, it's it's funny that, like, this pretty much is the Bane Rescue, and it's 1993, 
and I kind of couldn't care. Yeah, because then when I saw that Bane rescue in Dark Knight Rises, I was like, whoa, this blows my mind. Let's talk about two things here. Number one, John Litgow. He plays Eric Quaylen. It is hard to get a bead on the accent that John Litgow is using. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes British, sometimes so obviously non-British that I was like, well, is he just trying to go for that, like, is he trying to sound like Cary Grant? Yeah, I mean, he's always going to have that sort of mid-Atlantic affectation to the way he speaks. So why not just stick with that? Like, you know, because we find out later he's an international terrorist, so he is from Great Britain or whatever. But like, that is an arbitrary choice. It has nothing to do with the machinations of the money, of the plot, of any of this. It was just, a. I feel so bad for Rennie Harlan thinking he's getting Ricochet John Lithgow, thinking he's getting Buckaroo Bonsai, just this gonzo John Lithgow. And he, and Lithgow shows up and is like, I think I'm going to do British today. Like, fuck you. They pull off his robbery, but John Lithgow did not pull off that accent. It sucks <laughs> shit. <laughs> Fun. So they do this thing, the way they get the money and the uh, and Travers, right, from one plane to another is they trail like a wire behind them. The other plane picks it up. And then, you know, they slide the money, in theory, down from one plane to the other. So the they show Travers, right, climbing from one plane to the other, like sliding down a zip line, basically, in midair. I looked it up. Stuntman Simon Crane was paid $1 million to perform this because that's a real dude going from one plane to another in this aerial transfer scene. And he said he crossed between the two planes, altitude of 15,000 feet, or if you're horny for the metric system, 4,600 meters. But yeah, a little fun fact there. <laughs> I like I like the cost of it. They're like $1 million because you're probably going to die. <laughs> like they, yeah. It's weird to have stunt work associated with risk because it kind of like puts a number on how much they value his life. Travers with stuntman, right? He ropes shimmies to the rescue plane, but dying agent Matheson foils the robbery because what happens is the pilot is the last guy out. And he has, like the pilot who gave that other dude a disgusting look, a disgusted look after he shot him. He cares so little for humanity that on his way out, he steps on Agent Matheson's hand. He clearly <laughs> could have walked over it, but he's like, these corpses are nothing but, you know, cobblestones to me. And it, it wakes up Agent Matheson and he uh, resolves him, steals himself. He grabs an Uzi, he shoots the pilot. All of a sudden, oh, this thing's fucked up, and three cases of $100 million go crashing into the mountains below. One of the bad guys gets hurt. He gets shot by Matheson, and uh, Travers is like, this guy's hurt, too. He said that to Quaylen. Quaylen says, well, then let's get him to a hospital, and pushes him out the plane. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't mark out, but there's... As I'm re- as I'm revisiting this movie, you know, getting mm-hmm. ready for this episode, I realized there's maybe about four or five moments where I laughed really, really hard. Yeah. So, yeah, I got to give that credit. God damn it. That's really good. He says, let's get him to hospital really fast. <laughs> he, he just pushes him out. It was so funny. It was so fucking funny. The the bad guy plane, the rescue plane in theory, it crash lands in the mountains. And there's uh, cool shots here of, I'm guessing, some miniatures crashing into some snow. I love miniature work. And so I, I thought those scenes were fun. So they crash land. Uh, we get a real brief moment. Uh, we check in on Brett and Evan. They're jumping off a cliff. Brett and Evan are extreme sports dudes. The, the dialogue in this, I feel so bad when the makers of a movie tell you to have something that you know you don't need. So I'm sure the producers were like, no, we need to know, you know what they're thinking when they jump off this uh, off this cliff. Like, let's use some skydiver language. Let's use some extreme dialogue. So it's just like, hey, look at me. Hey, watch this. 
It's like, I feel so bad for the people who had to fill that in. Well, what's funny is I interpreted the dialogue a different way. That really felt like baby boomers writing about extreme sports people because the line he goes, I'm free. And the other guy goes, <laughs> radical man. And it just I could just see those boomers like in their suits, like, you know, they look like they work at uh, Sterling Cooper, Draper Price, uh, <laughs> like sucking back on cigarettes. Like, what do these extreme sports people say? It's like, well, David, their minds are so twisted. Jumping to their death probably makes them feel alive. He'd probably say something like, I'm free. <laughs> And the other guy's like, ah, that's disgusting. Have them say one of their trash words, like radical man, like, ah, brilliant, <laughs> type, 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 or whatever. We'll check in with them a little bit later. But we go back to the rescue station. We're, we're cross-cutting. We get the call in from, uh, from the crashed plane. They're pretending to be this uh, family, I guess, that's out in the middle of the mountains. Uh, yeah, and they're the, like, come rescue us. We're hurt. A lot of us are hurt. Yeah, and the lady even's like, uh, Billy needs insulin. And then... Quaylen is so pleased with that. He's like, he looks up at Travers. He's like, would you have thought of that? I was like, was I supposed to? I didn't realize there was a run on insulin all of a sudden. I didn't even get it at first. I was like, what the fuck's boring with that detail? And then my fair wife was watching this with me. She was like, well, it's so they would hurry all the more because he really needs insulin. So they really need to get their ass in gear. And I was like, oh, okay. But yeah, you're right. Quaylen, John Lickout was like, would you have thought of that stupid? Like he loved that insulin little touch. He just was like, it's those character moments that make you shine. And the person who made that call was Christelle, played by Caroline Goodall. Another person who you're like, I swear I've seen her in 90 things. And you probably have. So the Rangers take the phone call and Jesse, she's like, we got to get to this rescue right away. Or I'm going to go track down Gabe first. She's like, Gabe, you need to, only you can do this kind of rescue stuff. And Gabe, like, he he doesn't have the nerve for the rescue squad anymore, but then he has a change of heart, and he just teleports up to Mead, where, <laughs> Mead with Hal on the mountain. And there's a piece of dialogue here where he's like, I haven't climbed in months. You just lose the feel. And then Janine Turner looks at him, and she goes, you mean the nerve? What is their relationship? Because that is a fucking ice-cold statement to say to someone you supposedly care about. Yeah, that's a dagger that you use after years of goodwill have been built up. Like, you're an old married couple, and you're like, okay, I kind of need to devastate them. Let's do that. But like, if you've been dating for a year and he was gone for eight months of that, then you can't be playing that card. Now, David, I looked up the shooting script because I was trying to find like a specific scene to get like the exact dialogue. And I stumbled across a scene that did not make the final cut of the movie. Oh. And I know it sounds like I'm about to make up some bullshit, but this is a real scene. The The first eight months later, so the first scene post um, the death of Sarah, uh, the first time we see Gabe again in the shooting script, it says this, street day, eight months later. A five-gallon bucket of blackish water explodes against the pavement. On the street are signs that read, do not cross danger. Ten stories up. Gabe is ten stories up. On a suspended platform with a window washer scraper poised in his hand. He looks down in despair. He appears dis- he appears distraught and lifeless. The fire has gone out of his eyes. So, David, <laughs> the way the original movie, first of all, Here's how the final cut deals with the fact that he lost his nerve. Uh-huh. He goes, I haven't climbed in months. You just lose the feel. And then the character literally says, literally says, you mean you've lost your nerve, right? But the original script was like, so someone who's had a traumatic experience climbing, they definitely would stop climbing. However, they still just love being high up. So he would take a job <laughs> as a window washer. And then we cut to him having a panic attack as a window washer. Is are that the only job you can take? Does it go forest ranger? No applicable skills anywhere else. You wash windows now. No offense to my window washing kings. Why would you go immediately to a job that 
Fuck, I don't know. I'm glad that scene didn't make the cut. Ridiculous. <laughs> well, now I want to see a montage of the jobs he got fired from where it's like, hey, Gabe, we need the letters changed on that Burger King sign. And he's like climbing the ladder and it gets all shaky. Like, all right, cross that one off the list. Like, let's just go through like half a dozen jobs first. I'm sorry, I, I can't work as a roller coaster repairman anymore. Nights. <laughs> So we cut back to the federal agent subplot, right? And we find out that Matheson David, obvious traitor Matheson, was actually obvious undercover agent Matheson. He was working to bust Travers. And then we learn Eric Quaylen's backstory, which I'm sure is interesting, but I don't remember it. Now, do we find all this out in some sort of secret back room or some sort of underground bunker or anything like that? Well, David, I'm glad you said you're a fan of, uh, or excuse me, a fan of walking and talking because this walk and talk takes place, this secret federal agent meeting takes place in the middle of an airport. Which, I mean, I get it. Like, why do you want to just film inside uh, a federal office where there's, you know, four beige walls looking at you? But seriously, the fact they're having us in the middle of an airport is a little like, um, is that how this works? But we got to find out about Quaylen. So this is where we find out his motivations, I guess. He's the only person who can move this money. For sure. Now, Jesse told Gabe that he lost his nerve, but I guess he got the nerve back pretty quickly because we cut to Tucker scaling a mountain at the top of the mountain. There is fucking Walker. Yeah, he appears like Batman, <laughs> like out of nowhere. It's like that's where he respawned, I guess. And David, uh, we've had some friends that have lost some people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember any of those friends blaming us for the loss, but they might. I, is the best way to reunite with a grieving friend to fucking surprise them on top of a mountain where the person died? Not only that, but like there had to have been a moment where Hal was like, okay, is Gabe dead or am I dead? Because what the fuck are you doing here? How did you get here? I haven't seen you in eight months and now you're just on top of this mountain? (laughs) I'm dead. This is no good. But then Tucker and Walker, uh, they have their moment where they don't hug it out. In fact, like basically Hal hangs Gabe over a ledge and he's just like, give me a reason not to kill you. And Stallone, to his credit, plays it cool. and He's like, I know you want to kill me. I know you want to do this. I'll say this. They're pretty consistent in this movie. Because frequently they're held at gunpoint. They're always like, shoot me, shoot me, bitch. Like they just, they beg for it. So then they're like, well, I guess we'll work together. And they they climb up to where they think they're rescuing people. And uh, Stallone, to help him climb, uses Chekhov's bolt gun here. Which, by the way, I was looking on the internet. Bolt gun, apparently not a real thing that climbers actually use. Uh, the internet said, like, climbers were mad at this movie, which I was like, how the fuck would you know? Would you read about it at <laughs> Mountaineering Magazine? I don't know. But anyway, they get up and they find out there's no people being... You need rescue, it's uh, it's fucking Quaylen and his gang, the Quaaludes. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, the Quaaludes are waiting for the rescue copter. But when no copter is coming, Quaylen and the Quaaludes order Hal and Gabe to help them traverse the mountains in order to find the cases of money. So as we re- as it is revealed to Gabe and Hal, mm-hmm. uh, Travers and the, and, and the Quaaludes and all of them, they've got a map. They've got the trackers. They, they were just waiting for Gabe and Hal for the copter. The copter doesn't show up. This movie feels like a false premise after this, because why are Gabe and Hal still alive at that point? I mean, you're right. They don't need them. And they they don't hide this at all. Like, if you have people like, oh, tell me what I need to know, and I promise I won't kill you. But they're like, from the get-go, like, we're completely going to kill these guys. Like, they do the worst job of hiding it. And also, Travers, you know, he's like, you can't kill me because I'm the only one who can find uh, the cases of money. And it's like, yeah, but as soon as they find it, they're going to kill you. It's the most obvious thing of the fucking planet. They just don't hide their contempt for these people at all. So yeah, they they don't need them, and they they really can't stand the fact that they're alive because they keep 
they keep being like, I hate you. I'm going to kill you first chance I get. <laughs> but here we go. So there's three. So here's the premise of the movie, David. Mm-hmm. There's three cases filled with money and they got to go get them. Which, by the way, at this point, I was like, oh, man, here we are. The bad guys got the good guys. We got the premise of the movie. Three cases of money. We got to go track them down. This thing's moving along. How how long are we into this movie? And I look and we're 40 minutes in, which surprised me because I thought we were only 20 minutes in. Yeah. So I, I know we're about three hours in this podcast. But <laughs> at this point, I was like, oh, this movie's moving along at a good clip. And I, I, it doesn't feel like it's, what, 112 minutes? It doesn't feel like that. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty – the movie, uh, say what you will, but it's got good pacing. For sure, yeah. And, you know, it spends a lot of that time, like, just looking at beautiful scenery, which I'm kind of okay with in this movie. So they're going after the first case, and they order Gabe up the mountain to fetch the first case. And they're like, oh, you know, take his jacket so he he won't try to run away on us. Yeah, and they're like, uh, take his pants, too. Let's just, let's show him off. Let's let's celebrate his strength. And then when Quaylen reveals their obvious plan to kill Gabe upon his return, Hal snitches, and Gabe is able to escape. One of the terrorist idiots creates an avalanche, either accidentally or on purpose. And Gabe takes that opportunity to throw the first case into the avalanche, where its explosion is meant to signify Gabe's demise. And that is good enough for Quaylen. I, when watching this, didn't get the fact that he would be like, oh, a case fell down? Uh, Gabe's dead. Well, because he has that line where he's like, your friend just had the most expensive funeral in history. So he's like, good enough for me. But when they are, uh, when Quaylen and the Quaaludes are telling Gabe to go get the case they're not polite about it no the, it's a lot of like go fetch wonder dog and you know like a lot of jostling and a lot of shaking and it's just it's very easy very quick and easy way to get me the audience member to root for your death yeah and they love that fucking you're my dog metaphor because then travers immediately yells at gabe he said fetch and at that moment too i wrote down in my notes these dudes suck because <laughs> i i fucking hated that and yeah they're not trying at all to hide their murder lust they clearly want to get rid of him so gabe goes up the mountain and he's gonna go find this case and so like he goes up there he, he climbs and while he's gone the quaaludes are like i don't trust him and it's like based on what he is a park ranger like he's not some evil dude trying to horn on your money he's an employee you don't have to do this so gabe finds the first case and I guess to prove that it's theirs, he breaks it open, which, you know, like you said, it's very easy to break this open. Mm-hmm. Is that just a movie making thing? Is that just like Rennie Harlan was like, hey, we need to show the money. You can't just carry cases around. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They ask like, what's in the case? And they're like, oh, you know, a bunch of stuff, a thousand dollar bills or whatever. And so I think Gabe needed to like see for himself what was in the case. Now, but this movie takes place in the 90s, which I don't know if you remember, David, but the 90s themselves take place after the 80s. And it seemed like. There's a carryover feeling here from the 80s, which the best way to kill someone, even if you cannot see them, is to just never stop shooting in their general direction, mm-hmm. which is what the idiot bad guy does here. Because he doesn't even really have a bead on where Gabe is, but it doesn't stop him from like unloading like so much firepower into this mountain, which, again, yeah, just begging for an avalanche. So with that in mind, is he doing this on purpose to try and start the avalanche, or is he stupid? David, that's the sick thing about the minds of criminals. We, we, sane folks like me and you will never know. Oh, diabolical. But Jesse, right? She's getting worried about Hal and Gabe wherever she is in the cozy shack. And she asks Frank to take her up in the copter to try and find him. 
She asks Frank to take her up in the copter. Frank advises against it. And so Jesse's like, hey, I'll buy one of your nightmare portals. And uh, so he's like, all right, I sold a painting. Great. So he gives her a lift. Frank drops Jesse off at, at another ranger station. It was uh, one that Gabe kind of alluded to before he got cut off. And so he goes to another ranger station slash ye old climbing museum where Gabe eventually meets up with Jesse. And you discover that it's some sort of climbing museum because when Gabe walks in, he breaks the glass of a display case. And you're like, wait, what? What is a fucking display case doing up there? And then I guess it's full of old timey climbing shit because they use it. And so Gabe, who uh, you know is wearing a T-shirt, is now able to grab an old timey sweater from the display case. Well, I have news for you. I, I, I have uh, the facts because you know I live in Denver, Colorado. I'm close to this ranger station. That's the sweatshirt Lincoln was killed in. Oh my god, that's interesting. I did not know it was there, but I did know he was wearing a sweatshirt because as as uh, it was revealed in that that book uh, by uh, Kearns Goodwin, I think it is. Uh, mm-hmm. It was so cold in Ford's Theater, they passed out sweatshirts. And the sweatshirt said, you know, property of Ford's Theater Athletic Department. Ha ha ha. Just kind of like Old Navy does. And yeah, he was murdered in that sweatshirt. And that's why it it, um, it soaked up a lot of blood. Uh, however, they were able to wash it using old-timey methods. Now, while the the bad guys are like, what's going on? The Quaaludes gang, they're being like so shitty to Travers. They really have zero patience for him from the get-go. And at some point, Travers turns to one of them and he goes, I'm getting real tired of your threats. I agree, David. Because <laughs> they are laying it on so fucking thick. Everything anyone says, they immediately turn to a threat. Like, here, David, let's have a conversation right now, and I'll show you. So, hi, how are you? Better than you'll be if you don't find that case, because you'll be fucking dead. Well, I'm going out to dinner. Yeah. You know who else is going to go out to dinner? Vultures, when they feast on your bones, if you don't find that case. You know, you're very rude. You know what? I'll be super polite at your funeral I'll go to after I kill you. We don't find the case. It's like, Jesus Christ. If I was Travers, I would also be like, hey, dial it back a notch. So now the first case was thrown off a uh, off a cliff and it's unfindable, which, I mean, that's kind of how it landed, but whatever. We're not going to get into it. So now we got to find the second case, which is still pretty, I mean, there's still a lot of money in each case, Dave. So even with one case down, there's still a, a bounty to be found. Sure, you got to assume, but uh, Gabe and Jesse, they get the jump on the terrorists and grab the second case. And then Gabe decides to make their presence known by building a snowman with an empty case and taunting these armed terrorists who have his friend Hal. Mm-hmm. This kind of drove me nuts a little bit because even like, you know, when they get to the first or when they get to the second case, Gabe smashes it open. It's money. And he turns to Jesse. He's like, you got a pencil? And so he can write a little note taunting the Quaaludes, which we've talked about this before. Where like sometimes, you know, characters don't know they're in a movie, so they won't act, you know, in the best interests of of the plot, that sort of thing. Sure. It's very clear at this point, Gabe knows he's in a movie and he's like, <laughs> I want to make myself the lead character in this movie. I'm going to let them know who I am and be an asshole about it. I was trying really hard not to minimize this movie as Die Hard on a Mountain, right? Because <laughs> I feel like it's a real easy thing. Like if you're like, oh, speed is like Die Hard on a bus. It really isn't. But this at this point, I was like, this movie is just fucking Die Hard on a Mountain. If for a movie to be Die Hard on a something, I, I feel like this comes real close to it because it's like one you know, surprising hero up against a bunch of terrorists who underestimate him, right? And like, he, you know, it's sort of, they have him hostage in various situations. So with that in mind, this really did, did feel, especially with this, like, I'm going to taunt them very much in the vein of now I have a machine gun, ho, ho, ho. It just, at this point, it's like, oh, guys, you got to let Gabe be his own dude at this moment. 
But there is a great moment here when uh, when the Quaaludes find the snowman, which, like, again, even that's like, hey, I saw this in a movie. I'm going to build a snowman. Travers gets so mad, he clotheslines the snowman, which is satisfying. But if he had punched the snowman, I think that would have been a mark out moment for me. Mac, do you have any thoughts? Punching versus clotheslining? Hmm. I could see someone in the moment just not having their wits about them enough to punch, you know, like <laughs> do a little faint, a little boxing move and, and lay it up on the snowman. And maybe doing some sort of lame-ass move, like hitting it with your arm, effectively clotheslining it, and then just being so embarrassed by it. What I'm trying to say is, David, I could see myself doing this kind of pretty stupid. It just rings as like, what are you doing? Like, I think that scene would have been fine if one of the other characters would be like, what was that? (laughs) Hey, Travers, get it together. Because if you don't, I'll be clotheslining a corpse if you don't find that fucking case. So one of the terrorists, who was never given a name, uh, chases Gabe and Jesse through the forest wearing night vision goggles. But thankfully, Jesse has a flare in her pack, and Gabe blinds the guy. Uh, Gabe and the terrorists, they, they kind of alternate between punching and sledding on each other all the way down the mountain before uh, this unnamed terrorist just plummets into the abyss. David, the lighting in the scene is fucking insane. It, uh, <laughs> like, it's pretty, I guess they expect it to be, like, moonlight or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's just, the lighting is just so dramatic. At some point, it's like, when he's using the night vision goggles, it's very clearly as bright as day <laughs> on this nighttime mountain scene. It's definitely an artistic choice and then some. But man, like, you could tell the movie wanted this to be a showcase piece. Like, hey, it's a night vision sequence. But like, by 93, we're already two years after Silence of the Lambs, and I'm already bored with night vision. This scene was really, really underwhelming for me. However, the scene was redeemed a little bit for me when they like cartoon characters did start using each other as sleds. That was so fucking funny. that I think I did. I don't know if I laughed out loud, but I was like, this rules. I think I said, so I don't know. Is that enough for a markout moment? I'll say it is. I'll say this is my uh, second markout moment was when they started sledding on each other. No, it, it ended up getting me because they like, they start sledding on each other at first and I'm like, I kind of groaned a little. I was like, oh boy, are we doing this? But then two things happen. One, they switch off. And like the guy who's on the top ends up being on the bottom. And I was like, okay, that's pretty great. But then Quaylen pulls out his binoculars and just sees them sledding down. And I was like, okay, this is a pretty wonderful sequence here. Yeah, if that guy had lived, it would definitely have been on his performance review. Like, you gotta, you can't let a dude sled on you. However, Gabe sends that unnamed bad guy you know, falling off a cliff. And it's actually a really cool shot because he basically just falls into darkness, like into complete blackness. I I definitely thought that was a, a neat visual. Oh, I thought it was awesome too as a viewer of this movie, but as Gabe, uh, that can't be good for the old PTSD. That's a good point because right there he could have been like, Sarah or something. And Jesse could have been like, get it together, stupid. Just more <laughs> of their clearly toxic relationship. So Gabe and Jesse, after fella plummets to his death, Gabe and Jesse hole up in some cave. They burn the money for heat. Gabe has a joke where he's like, oh, it costs a fortune to heat this place, which I'm sure he thought of the moment he heard money was involved. He was like, I got to use this for later. And then meanwhile, the terrorists hole up in the ranger station. And uh, we also check in on Evan and Brett, who are quarreling before their last jumps tomorrow. Now, you think that Gabe and Jesse, right, they're tucking in for the night, that that would be a night of fitful sleep, if any rest. You know what I mean? Like, there's terrorists after them. You don't think they'd be able to like really be able to just, you know, uh, unplug after a long day. But they get so cozy together. Like there's like, <laughs> which again, I'm like, what is their relationship? She, they so naturally they just like fold into each other that you're just like, these are people are mad at each other. I think they, I think they like each other. 
I think a lot of that is due to the score because this is one of those moments where like they're cozy enough for the night and it's like it's like oh this is this is a nice scene good good night heroes now I know what to ask Michael Mann if I ever bump into him I'll be like what do you think about that dude ripping off his score in that other movie and if, <laughs> if Michael Mann cops out and says he hasn't seen it I'm gonna be like fuck you Michael Mann thanks for making your stuff. The next morning, Extreme Sports Bros, Evan and Brett, run into Hal on the terrace, and they're just like, Hal, what's up, Hal? Hey, Hal. Like, they just not completely oblivious to the fact that he's got six terrorists behind him. Kinnett, played by Leon, one named after Leon, a.k.a. Shep from Above the Rim, kills Brett and leaves Evan alive long enough to execute one last sick stunt. Yeah, it's supposed to be an exciting scene because it's like, will he get the parachute on in time? Will he get the helmet on in time? What are the stakes if he doesn't? He's going to be dead either way. So I'm really just kind of like, all right, it's, it's literally your funeral, pal. But Quaylen has a line here uh, after they kill one of the extreme dudes. I forget which one. But Hal's like, you're a murderer. You're just a cold-blooded killer. And Quaylen has that line where it's like, you know, kill one and you're a murderer. Kill a million and you're a conqueror. But he says it in a way where he's like, kill a million and you're a conqueror. Go figure. And the way he says go figure is like, this is Stewie Griffin, isn't it? You're, I can't take you oh seriously as a villain. Oh, my God. It's like, go figure. It's like, fuck off. Oof. By the way, this is not Leon's first scene in the movie, but it is his like, first prominent moment as a murderer, and we're going to get to see more of his murder section later. And I was like, what's Leon been up to? And the answer is so much shit. However, something else that actor Leon has been up to is definitely he or his management is in charge of his entries on websites. Because if you look up Leon on IMDb, it says, 2222 is shaping up to be another breakout year for Leon, exclamation mark. What? <laughs> I didn't realize these were supposed to be like editorials. And then if you go to his Wikipedia page, which I did, clearly uh, someone who's pro-Leon has been editing this. Because in the music entry, it says, oh, because uh, Leon's, even though it goes by you know just the one name, his name is Leon Preston Robinson. Robinson is the lead vocalist and songwriter of the band Leon and the Peoples, one of NYC's hottest bands. There's no attribution there. That's not like a quote from a reviewer. It's Wikipedia being like, no, clearly this is this is a fact. There's not even we don't even have to source it. It's just everyone yeah. knows they're one of NYC's hottest bands is Leon and the Peoples. It doesn't say in a certain year. So they're currently one of the hottest bands, David. Yeah. Well, find someone who loves you the way Leon's street team loves him. So Gabe and Jesse are trying to stay ahead of the terrace by navigating through like some cracks and some, you know, in, in the caves. Travers refuses to cross a rope bridge. So Hal leads them along another route while Kinnett is sent to apprehend Gabe and Jesse. So in this scene, it's almost like the movie forgot everything that led up to this point in the movie because Travers is the one who has reservations. I'm not going on that fucking rope bridge. That thing's, it's a killer. This is the same guy who shimmied from a plane to another plane like it was nothing. And all of a sudden, he's got a problem with the rope bridge? Come on, dude. Yeah, honestly, I forgot about that too, but you're right. That is some horse shit. But again, this has another part where they make Gabe say some really great stuff. This is where he he points to a crack in the mountain, and he's like, to stay ahead of them, we got to have to go through that crack. I was like, God bless you. Mm -hmm. So after a quick check-in on Frank... I don't actually remember where he is at this point. And also the federal agents, Gabe and Jesse have a harrowing encounter with some bats. Yes. Yeah, so they're in the cave and, uh, you know, Gabe looks up. It's like, oh, Jesse, don't well, he looks move. up because he puts his hand in something and he looks at his hand and it's, it's covered in poo poo. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. then he looks up and sees bats. David, 
I live in Austin, used to live in Austin. I don't want to brag, but we do have one of the largest urban bat populations in the country because they live under the South Congress Bridge. Those bats fucking smell. Yeah. And so the fact that like he's inches from them and he's like, also he doesn't hear them at all. I don't know. That is, uh, uh, I don't know what's going on in that mountain, my man. Well, Mac, I think it's remarkable that these people were hired to be rescue on this mountain that they've never been on because they're acting like tourists. They're acting like they've never been around bats before because it's very easy. Just like, Hey, if you happen to rustle up some bats and they're flying around, you know, every which way get down. It's very simple. They're not attacking you. They're trying to get out of the cave. Yeah, because they react like these bats are going to kill them. Jesse straight up fails the hard target test where uh, if you're being told, hey, don't move, there's an animal nearby, you don't move because there's an animal nearby, Jesse fails that. One of the things we said is uh, they check in with the agents here. And uh, if you listen, don't worry about them, right? Occasionally in this movie, they'll go and they'll check in on the agents and they're always in a plane and always like, oh, we need to go look over here, look over there. Just fucking who gives a shit? We're not even, we're going to stop mentioning the check in with the agents. They come in at the end of the movie. They never do anything. Don't worry about them. But then we get to Kinnett. He stumbles across Gabe, digging his way out of this cave. And then there's going to be another action set piece, Mac. Yes, David. As I look at my copy of the DVD, which is the Hang On edition, cave violence is how this action set piece is described. Yeah, so we get a, a cave fight with fighting quotes between Gabe and Kinnett, where both men are needlessly shitty to each other. Uh, it ends with Gabe. He lifts Kynet into a stalactite. Uh, mm. And then Gabe, uh, this mild-mannered rescue worker, is now a straight-up murderer. I guess it's Kynet. I've been saying Kynet. It's all right. Don't sue me. When he finds Gabe crawling out of his little mountain spider hole, Gabe does a cool move here because we can't see his uh, right arm because it's underneath the snow. And he's like, you know, come out of the cave. And Gabe's like, all right, fine. But then he lifts his arm out of the snow and it's got an axe. And he swings it right at Kinnett, and the result is this tiny little cut into the uh, front of Kinnett's leg, where I guess there was a strawberry jam packet because the blood immediately just like blur oozes out like molasses or whatever. Gabe falls down because he was, you know, he's climbing up the crevice of this mountain or this cave, but Gabe like falls back down the whole thing he's been climbing, bouncing off rock walls and dodging bullets, and then it's just fucking fine. He's completely fine. Then Kinnett uh, falls down and the fight continues or, you know, starts, whatever. Yeah, it's a very underwhelming fight. Uh, it's really just them, like, calling each other bitches. And I think at one point, like, uh, Gabe says, you hit like a sissy. Yeah, sissy. So you see that Kinnett has this, like, Uzi that's like the smallest Uzi I've ever fucking seen. Like, uh, uh, did a prisoner make it? Uh, like, you know, carving a gun out of soap? And however, he also has like these brass knuckles sticking out of his pocket. And you're like, I'm excited about that because like, when is he going to bust out these brass knucks, right? Hell yeah. But then you find out it's just a dumb old knife. It's just the handle of a knife. And it's like, I've seen knives in movies. I want to see some knucks. <laughs> so when Kinnett is coming down there, Jesse and Gabe are like setting a trap for him, right? In fact, when Kinnett sees Gabe, he's like, you're making this too easy, man. But then their big move here is that what happened is Jesse has climbed up and she's hanging off the roof of the cave and kicks Kynette and he's dead. End of movie. Good guys win. No, Kynette gets up instantly. That kid didn't do anything. That's a, that was a really dumb trap. But for me, it made sense because they're climbers. So their solution is going to be climbing. It's like every problem looks like a uh, nail to a hammer, right? So like they're down there like, think, Gabe, how do we climb our way out of this? Think back to when you were a kid detectives. What would you do then? Oh, I know. Jesse will hang down and drop on him. It was like. How long do you think she was hanging up there? How long do you think this plan was in places like, hey, you go climb up there and wait for him? 
long enough to get really tired in the arms. I gotta say, like Jenny uh, <laughs> Turner seems like she's in great shape, but still, it's you're hanging, you're carrying your own body weight in your arms for a while. It's gonna take its toll. Kinda quickly has the upper hand again, and he pulls out this giant knife, and Gabe is winded, and so Kainetti's like, "Where's the case?" And then he looks at Gabe and he goes, "I'm only gonna ask you this three times. What the fuck? What a weird like." Here comes a game. Just ask him once. You're basically being like, let me ask you three times. So your first two answers, please make them subtle fuck yous to me. Subtle or obvious <laughs> fuck yous. Because uh, you, you got three chances here. It's such a weird ass thing to say. Oh, there's not even like a, I'm going to cut you. Or like, I'm taking a finger for each wrong answer. It's like, all right, where is it? Okay, pretty please, where is it? All right, sugar on top, where is it? Yeah, like uh, Will Ferrell's character and. Austin Powers two or one or whatever. He he hates being asked things three times. <laughs> it's up on the third question. He gives it up. So then Kynette, who cannot stop calling uh, Jesse a bitch, uh, implies that he is going to sexually assault her once he kills Gabe, which is great. That's such a fun thing to put in a movie. And uh, being sarcastic because it was super needless. Because we already we already think this guy sucks. Here's the thing with with Leon though. He's got some good physicality to him. Like he's really kind of beating the shit out of Gabe, and he's giving him some kicks. And for the most part, I buy it. And the guy, we already saw him, like, murder one of the extreme sports guys. He already is, like, a complete asshole. I don't know if I want him dead, though. Can he maybe be a rapist? Like, it's such a weird thing to throw in there. However, that's enough for Gabe to grab Kynette by the dick and then lift him up over his head and then, yeah, reverse stab him onto a stalactite, which I got to say, pretty cool kill. This is going to be my second mark out moment. I called it Stalactite Night for nice. people who were fans of my notes. Um, I was mostly just happy because I wanted to see the talking end. Like I was sick of these characters, and it was just more of a relief to see him dead. So it's, uh, but it's still, you know, I marked out. Look, David, no one is more surprised at this than me. But this was not quite a mark out moment for me. What? what? I think it was just a combination of a bunch of things. Also, I, I thought Leon had a little bit of charisma in this movie, and so I was sad to see him go. Because dummies like this other dude, uh, Delmar, who's another bad guy, uh, survives. Speaking of Delmar, we cut outside real quick. We get some real cool racism from Delmar, played by Craig Fairbrass, who's like, I hope that black bastard uh, dies or whatever. And it's like, oh, cool. We, uh, we got a cool racist here, guys. Cool, 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 cool. <laughs> tight, 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 tight. You can't shut up for $100 million. Like, you can't just bite your tongue. Just be polite. I want everyone to know I'm a racist against a member of our coworkers we all work with. Just put that out there. But then uh, Quaylen and the Quaaludes happen upon the cave and discover that Gabe and Jesse are in the cave. And because bad guys got to do bad guy shit, they decide to blow up the whole motherfucking thing. Hal snitches again. It gives up the gives up the plan. And uh, Gabe and Jesse are able to make their escape. That's right. Make their escape during an action sequence. Uh, we like to call escape from the exploding cave. So they're racing out of the cave and they're like climbing down. And then their plan to get away from the explosion, they have to like swing back and forth. It's a good scene and it works. So when trying to escape the exploding cave in time before it explodes, uh, there's a key moment here where Jesse falls and Gabe catches her. So this is like, this is Gabe's moment of redemption. This is, you know, it's all coming together. Oh my God, I, I'm able to right the wrongs that I, that I did with Sarah. Yeah, because it's pretty much like a recreation of that same situation where Gabe is now holding on to Jesse by just her hand, just like with Sarah. So this is like, oh, here we go, the culmination of everything. We're wrapping this movie up. Mac, there's still 35 minutes left in this movie. Why are we getting this moment of redemption right now? 
Yeah, I was right there with you, David, because I thought this was like, you know, the big moment of the movie. The whole thing like Gabe's character arc was leading to was like, is he able now to, in the moment, get over that trauma and help his friends when they need him most? Because I, I thought they were really going to build this up like, oh, is his grip stronger? Can he do it this time? Has he been working on his grip strength? Has he been doing those dead hangs? Has he been pissing on his hands like baseball players do to toughen him up? But it did not matter because the moment was over so fast. As soon as you're like, oh my God, this is just like that scene earlier. Oh, she's already, oh, she's back up. But I'll say this, two things. Number one, Sarah was not a climber. Jesse is a climber. So Jesse's strength can also help the situation. But also Stallone, you know, pulling up Jesse this time, he had those veins pop, pop, popping out of that neck. He was really giving it all. I don't remember those veins popping there with uh, when Sarah was falling. I'm not so sure he gave his all that first time. That's interesting. That makes a whole lot of sense because he also hated her guts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he knew that if she lived, that he wouldn't be able to resist her because that that mouth kiss. Frank, remember that guy, that fucking psycho who sold a painting? He's probably still high off of that. He's lured to rescue Christelle, again, played by Caroline Goodall. But Delmar decides it's his turn to be shitty, right? And he shoots Frank to death. Hal watches Frank die and then steals his knife. Meanwhile, Gabe and Jesse activate a tripwire while crossing the rope bridge, and it explodes. So, Mac, I have a confession to make yes. about, about uh, the death of Frank. Frank is, is this lovable scamp. I, I'm not quite sure he knew he was being tricked. I'm pretty sure he went to his grave <laughs> thinking he was still trying. he was still trying to decipher the mystery of why he can't help this lady. And I got to be honest with you, I laughed when Frank died. There's something about <laughs> old people and squibs. I don't know what the combination is, but just he got shot. And man, I enjoyed the heck out of it. Yeah, because Frank is flying around and he sees Christelle, or he doesn't know it's Christelle. He just sees a body and some like rescue me smoke because uh, the smoke looks like Dennis Leary. And he goes down and he turns around. And he's like, she's probably really hurt. And she's just like, nah, this is, a, this is a trick or something. And yeah, I think Frank is just like, what's happening? But I guess, David, that those bullets were really weighing down this crew because in order to shoot this old man who's not fighting back, Delmar empties a full clip into him. Yeah, that's that's kind of shitty. Delmar, he's he's making a hard charge to be the shittiest person in this movie. But yeah, Gabe and Jesse, they meanwhile, they're on this rope bridge. Jesse activates a tripwire, so they got to go back before it explodes, that sort of thing. This is one of the moments in the movie where you could clearly tell Janine Turner is having the time of her life. She's just <laughs> like, she can't hide it. So I think it was just infectious throughout the set of the movie. Yeah, so that tripwire kind of sucked because they pretty easily got back. There wasn't even uh, any sort of cliffhanging involved. He just was like, he jumped, he made it back in time, and he just kind of stood up or whatever. Cut back to the Quaaludes, David. There's trouble in paradise because the gang is they're bickering with each other that's right yeah there's a power struggle between quaylen and travers it's it's boiling to a head now but quaylen out maniacs travers by killing christelle apparently she's the only one who could pilot the the helicopter besides quaylen so quaylen eliminates the competition just to show how crazy he is you know of course travers falls back in line because he doesn't take a moment to figure out what Quaylen's leverage is in all of this. But meanwhile, Delmar is assigned to kill Hal. Yeah, because Travers and Delmar go up to the case and then, you know, Travers looks on his case finding device and he's like, it's right up there. We don't need this dude Hal anymore. So Delmar gets dispatched. He's like, go ahead and get rid of uh, Hal. Yeah, do it it quietly. Yeah, (laughs) but uh, Hal decides he's not going out without getting his ass kicked. I mean, sorry, uh, without knifing a guy and then shooting him. So it's like, you know, it's a good fight back moment for Hal while he's getting his ass kicked by Delmar. Yeah, so we know that Hal has a knife. 
And Hal knows that Hal has a knife. He didn't just like, it's not like a, you know, where the audience sees it, he doesn't. So Delmar has been assigned to kill him. And he's basically like, I'm going to kill you. And Hal knows it. And so Hal starts like taking off his jacket or whatever here. And so I don't know about you, David, but this moment I'm like, when's Hal going to pull out that knife, right? And so Hal's plan here is like, he just basically takes a beating for like five minutes before he's like hanging off of a cliff. And he's like, now I will use the knife. Which, and, and again, it's more like, you're going to shoot me? Shoot me, asshole, shoot me. Just like begging Delmar to shoot him. At first, it made no sense, Dave, but then I thoughts about it. How did Delmar kill Frank? Did he use just one bullet at close range because that's all he needed? No, David. He shot him full of so many bullets at a distance. This guy's a coward. He's no fucking trained assassin. So when he's like, you need to shoot me, like, you know, point blank. Delmar can't do it, man, because he's no, he's, and, and Hal knows this. He looks in his eyes. He's like, this dude's weak. He's soft. I'm just going to let him beat me for a while until I get my chance. <laughs> and that may sound stupid, David, but guess what? It fucking worked. Well, God bless him. Because like, yeah, he's, but, uh, I'm going to make him tired by pummeling me and by telling me this boring story about comparing fighting to soccer. Oh, yeah. So he goes, you like soccer? I love it. I was a pretty good striker. And then he just keeps kicking Hal closer and closer to the edge of the cliff, the whole time being like, uh, here comes a penalty kick. Oh, here's another big kick. Oh, here's a, we're in a, a injury time or stoppage time or whatever. Here comes another kick. And just really laying on like so much soccer talk. And then right before Hal stabs him, he looks up and he goes, season's over, asshole. And he stabs him and then he throws him off the fucking cliff. That's not the greatest line, but for some reason, I got to admit at that moment, I really enjoyed it. That was my third markout moment, David. Uh, it's it's mine too. That's going to be my markout moment as well. It goes back, it harkens back to the first markout moment where it's really just a culmination of things. So in this instance, Hal is hanging off the ledge, you know, he's getting ready to fall. So he knifes Delmar, reaches up, grabs Delmar's shotgun, says season's over, shoots Delmar. So it was oh, just boom, right. boom, 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 boom. Shotgun, yeah. Very, very satisfying, and it's especially satisfying to shoot somebody who's so enthusiastic about soccer. That would have been my plan if I was Hal, is just uh, Alpha Dog Delmar, uh, and his love of soccer be like, what? What are you talking about? Striker, what? It, what? what is this about soccer? That's That would be my plan. Of course, when you say you're, you're uh, not excited about soccer, it's because you and I call it football out of respect, which Delmar does not. I think he's a fake. I think he, I think he's also faking a British accent. He's just doing it well. Seasons over, asshole. Not the best kill line, but I appreciated a kill line. I mean, I would have been like asshole season or something. I don't know. There's like there's you could have workshopped that, but I'll take it. So the first case, David, Gabe threw it off a cliff. The second case, full of money, Gabe burned all that money for warmth. Now we're closing in on the third case, which when Gabe finds it, he looks over. And he sees a hole in the ground and goes like, hmm, something about that hole. We cut to Travers. He finally finds a tracker that should indicate the third case. But David, that tracker is on a bunny rabbit. Oh, Gabe did that. <laughs> Gabe is a scoundrel. Yeah, he, you know, he empties out that third case, puts all of the money into a sack for movie reasons. And so, yeah, he decides to play a little game, tire the tracker to a bunny. I think everybody watching this movie had a moment where it's like, don't you fucking kill that bunny. We've made it this far in the movie. If you kill that bunny, it's going to ruin everything. And thankfully he didn't. Yeah, 80s, 80s, 90s style here. He just, again, he just empties a clip at the bunny's direction. He doesn't see the bunny anymore. David, you think gunfire would scare a rabbit away, right? 
But after like, you know, Travers unloads the clip, did he kill the bunny? Did he not? Either way, you think the bunny's not going to be there anymore. Either it's blown to pieces or it's in the fucking next mountain over because it bailed. Nuh-uh. After he's done firing, he looks up. Who comes up that hill again? It's that fucking rabbit. He comes back. A huge fuck you from the <laughs> rabbit to Travers. I stand a cottontailed king, my man. He's uh, <laughs> that little, that fuzzy hopping machine, the way he comes back. Fuzzy tail, brass ovaries on my man, the rabbit. Oh, he's probably got uh, testicles, but whatever. Uh, either way, huge. I loved it. Also, the rabbit still wearing this tracking device, like a giant like laser tag belt or whatever. Yeah, it's like a, a giant money belt of uh, of tracking devices. But you know what? Credit to the rabbit. He broke Travers. This yeah. is Travers fucking loses it. And like even Quaylen says over communications, he's like, uh, uh, Travers, you've lost it. And uh, Travers like, fucking A, I've lost it, which was awesome. <laughs> I think at this point he like, maybe it's this point, maybe a little bit later, but like he throws the tracking device. just like, I quit. Yeah. Like he's just, <laughs> it's, uh, man, uh, Travers Maybe my favorite character in this movie. Travers realized that he's going to fucking lose. <laughs> like, uh, probably like the first bad guy to be like, we're not going to win this one. But yeah, that is the last draw for Travers, who then pursues Gabe to Santa's village. I mean, look, I'm not an expert in this movie, but clearly seemed to me to be a movie set. <laughs> yeah, I would say so, sure. <laughs> and then we have the action sequence here. I like to call Showdown at Icetown because it takes place in like a sort of a little ice village or whatever. And Gabe's plan here is he's going to hide until Hal magically shows up with a gun and shoots Travers. So what is happening here is that Travers is like, he's looking around this like, well, first of all, when he's pursuing Gabe, uh, we see Gabe like jump in the air and then we cut to a different shot of Gabe jumping and he's fucking pretty much flying. It's it's incredible. So Travers is now tracking Gabe and he's tracking him on this footbridge and he sees there's like blood on it because he's like, oh, I guess I hit him. I'm tracking him. And he's like, I don't see Gabe around here anywhere. Gabe is underneath the bridge, and he pops right up and grabs Travers like a shark attack. His plan's not that great, though, because he immediately falls through ice <laughs> into some freezing cold waters. Yeah, so what – I don't I don't quite under, understand the length of this plan because it culminates with Gabe, you know, popping up from the water, shooting Travers. Or does he? I'm a, I'll be honest with you, I'm a little confused here because around the same time, we also see Hal with a gun – and I got the sense initially that Hal saves the day, but this is kind of a mess to me, Mac. It is kind of a mess. I thought Gabe shoots him at first, but then afterwards when I saw Hal, I was like, oh, wait, did Hal shoot him? But the thing is, is like Gabe is stuck under the ice. And so Travers is like walking on the ice, just looking at Gabe, who's trying to make himself the biggest target possible by pretty much laying flat belly up <laughs> against the ice. And he turns around. Now, Ryan's Travers is going to shoot him. But finally, we see Chekhov's bolt gun. Gabe has it. And he shoots three bolts into Travers. And I said, hell yeah, out loud. And I was like, you know what? That's another mark out moment for me. But yeah, but I guess maybe Hal shot him. I don't know. So where is Travers's corpse? Well, now it's in the ice, David, under, under the ice in the water. And do we see it floating there? Yeah, we do. But we see it floating at a pretty good pace. It is like, I guess there's a secret current or something like this. Because <laughs> he's not just like floating below the ice. He's like traveling below the ice. It's like, oh shit, that corpse has a places to be uh, yeah travers was straight up getting sucked into a vortex his soul is <laughs> yeah. no longer allowed to exist on this plane so meanwhile jesse sees a helicopter it's coming over the horizon she rightly assumes frank is flying but nope it's quailin it's quailin's copter now so i guess he tells her to get in and she does uh, i kind of wish the movie had stuck around to explain the logistics of that 
But uh, Quaylen calls Gabe and Hal and proposes a swap. Uh, Jesse for the money. Jesse directs Quaylen to the top of, of the tower where we originally started this movie and where Gabe is waiting with the money. Well, David, first of all, Quaylen pointed a gun at Jesse. Quaylen's inside a helicopter about 60 feet away from Jesse. <laughs> but I think he can make that shot. And, and even though there's really no way to get her into the helicopter without her wanting to get in, somehow she does. And that helicopter's probably like a mountain goat, so she could just, you know, go over the horizon and that helicopter's going to be right there with her, I'm sure. Impossible to escape a helicopter in a mountain, David. So when Quaylen calls Gabe... We see that Gabe, uh, he was just in some freezing cold uh, water, right, David? Yeah, yeah, just a moment ago. Well, it doesn't really matter because he's just relaxing with a fucking t-shirt on, dry as a bone, and I guess Gabe's just too tough for hypothermia, man. I ain't got time to bleed, he ain't got time to freeze. And also right here is when, I think this is right here where I figured out it's the last of the Mohicans music that it reminds me of, because at this moment it's just fucking killing me. I'm just like, what? What is this? Anyway, so after Quaylen politely drops off Jesse, it's time for Cliffhanger, the movie's final action set piece, Operation Encopter. So this is going to be the one final fight that ensues between Gabe and Quaylen uh, on top of the belly of the chopper because the chopper... Okay, so Gabe crashes the chopper by throwing the bag of money into the blades of the helicopter. The helicopter goes careening down and it ends up you know, upside down and Quaylen and Gabe are fighting on this upside down helicopter that's hanging onto the ladder and so they got to get off the copter before it falls it sounds preposterous to say it out loud now i am realizing yeah so when quaylen first crests the hill or whatever the top of the cliff and he sees gabe they're communicating via walkie-talkie and quaylen says i must admit you're a real piece of work and then gabe answers right back i must admit you're a real piece of shit right there quaylen should have known that he needs to go home you're walking into an obvious trap, that <laughs> beginning of this encounter, you need to be like in the moment, like, look, I've basically set myself up for my own D's nuts joke, and he D's nuts me. I'm not on my game today. I just I just need to take this copter. We'll just go to Mexico, right? Well, you know what? I don't think either of these guys are on their game right now because, so like I said, Gabe destroys the helicopter by throwing the bag of money into it. The, you know, the, he filled a bag with money earlier and now he's hanging it, you know, he's dangling the, the bag uh, for Quaylen to grab. So he throws this bag of money into the copter blades. Did it need to be money, Mac Blake? Did it, could he just filled that up with snow or rocks or something and thrown that into the blades just the same? You know what, David? It sure did not need to be the money. It sure could have been anything else. In fact, I thought that was going to be the twist because he's holding up this bag that Quaylen has never seen before. And he could have like opened it up and have been like, it's rock stupid or something. The fight here between Quaylen and Stallone, or excuse me, Quaylen and, well, yeah, it was Stallone's game. I kind of liked it. Because the thing with John Lithgow is he's a big guy. I wish they had set up a little earlier that he was more of a physical threat, like maybe have him beat someone to death or something like that. But there are some nice moves. But yeah, it, it ends with Quaylen, uh, his helicopter, crashing down to the ground below. We get a close-up of Quaylen's face as he's like, Aah! and his helicopter explodes. One more thing about this. I think a lot of problems in this movie could have been solved by teaching people how to lock arms. And, you know, by that, I mean, like, if you're hanging on to a ladder, mm -hmm. don't just hang on by your hands. Like, you know, lock your arm oh, onto yeah. it. I, I feel like a lot of problems could have been solved by just a proper ladder maintenance, I guess. Dave, I, I didn't know you were such a, you know, a rock jock, my man. You know those climbing moves. I'm a crag hag. <laughs> so finally, these feds arrive. Who gives a shit? They've been pretty much <laughs> flying around this whole time, just having a little joyride. 
And they're like, uh, people on the mountain, survivors. And we're talking about now is Hal, Gabe, and Jesse, Rooker, Stallone, and Janine. Hal goes, if you're looking for Quaylen, he's like a thousand feet south or whatever, meaning that he's at the bottom of the mountain. And then uh, Hal goes, he'll be the one wearing a helicopter. And the Fed, without missing a beat, just goes, good. (laughs) So I I laughed out loud again at that. The fact that he's like, that guy's dead. And the Fed was like, good, I'm glad he's dead. Like, it just was like, wait, you're supposed to be like, oh, we want to catch him and interrogate him and flip him on. No, he's just like, he's dead. Great. I love him. Nah, fuck him. Yeah. And then comes some fake Last of the Mohicans music. And that is the end of the movie. All right, David, how many markout moments did you have? What's your final tally? I think my, in fact, I know my final tally is going to be three in this movie. How about you, Mac? Surprising a respectable four markout moments for me. David, now we have to ask the question, is this someone's favorite movie? Man, probably some tool. Probably someone who's like, they're not even an avid climber, but their personality projects that they're super into climbing or something like that. I don't know. This is a fine movie. No knock on it, but just... it. it I don't want to meet the person who's, whose favorite movie this is. I got to take a step back here because every time we ask this question, is this someone's favorite movie? I instantly write a little short story of like, oh, someone might have seen this with their dad right before uh, their dad was bitten by that venomous horse or something like that. <laughs> so I, I'm, from now on, all of my answers will not factor in personal significance. For example, one of the first R-rated movies I saw with my dad was Die Hard with a Vengeance. And so that was one of my favorite movies forever. Because I had that mm-hmm. little experience there. So I'm, if you would say, like, I saw this with my brother, and we really bonded, like, you know, it might be those people's favorite movie, but that's not who we're talking about. That is my little caveat forever. I will never mention it again. For sure. I think this might be someone's favorite movie, and that person would be a climber with a sense of humor. Because I think the climbing in this movie is not very realistic, but somebody might like it for that reason, kind of ironically. So I'd say, yeah, it might be someone's favorite movie, but the fact that someone's like, oh, we should go watch Cliffhanger. The climbing in it is so, so shitty. It's hilarious. Like that is, yeah, that, that person probably sucks. All right, David, time for some punch-ups. How would you punch up this script to make it better? First thing I do, hey, hey, ho, ho, reserve John Lithgow's gotta go. I want crazy John Lithgow. Also, Gabe, or you know what? Anybody really try, try laundering the money, try spending this money. Cause I know the whole conceit of this movie is like Lithgow's the only guy who can move this money. He's the only guy who, who could find buyers for thousand dollar bills. And so we're just supposed to kind of accept that throughout the movie. What if we had a scene at the end, like at the end of the rock where Nicholas Cage is running out of the church with the microfilm. What if we have a scene where Stallone's trying to buy a boat? Or something with like a stack of thousand dollar bills. I want that. Kind of like Too Fast, Too Furious, where at the end you realize that uh, both Paul Walker and Tyrese have <laughs> pocketed a lot of the stolen money. <laughs> yes. Wow, I just gave Too Fast, Too Furious as an example of something to do in a movie. So that is, the fingers are not, not doing so great. My third punch up, my most important punch up. What if this is Travers's movie? What if this movie Interesting. follows him? Because, you you know, when we first see him in the in the Denver Mint office, like, we get the early signs of him being shifty, him looking around, him trying to get away with this. And to watch this movie from his point of view where it just devolves in such grand fashion, I think I'd want to see that movie. That's kind of like uh, For the Devil Knows You're Dead. Or like This is like uh, Uncut Gems, maybe like Uncut Cliffs or something like that. <laughs> yes. What about you, Mac? What are you punching up? 
first of all, that redemption moment, that moment where he, uh, he being Stallone, uh, Gabe Walker, is holding on to Jesse in the same situation, recreating that first scene. That moment needs to just be like, just milk that for all it's worth or whatever. That should have hit so much harder, but it was just over so fast and it kind of was like a who cares. The second uh, punch up, you, you're going to think I'm taking the piss here, David, like our friend Delmar would say. But honestly, this movie Cliffhanger, give it a cliffhanger. I feel like it's in the fucking title. Cliffhangers for movies that don't have sequels might be kind of a cheap ending. Not if it's in the fucking title. It's called Cliffhanger. What is somebody going to... So yeah, you can't. I'd say at the end of the movie, the three friends are celebrating like, we did it. Instead of just going to cut into a wide helicopter shot of them on top of the mountain, have Hal and Janine Turner, Jesse, both fall like their ground crumbles beneath them. And then Stallone grabs them like both by their hands and then it's this moment of like, oh, like they're both slipping, but he can only save one. What happens? Credits or something like that. People leave the theater. Oh, they would have been talking about that for fucking ever. <laughs> um, and if you felt that was cheap, go ahead and like do an in credits thing where like they drop down and they're like, oh, huh, looks like there was some ground a foot below us. No, everything was cool. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. All right, David, follow me into the Punch Man video store here. Where? Oh my god, this place is a mess. What happened here? What the hell? Why is all the candy everywhere? Did you just have, was this the Punch Mountain Video Store holiday party? Is that what happened here? It was. Uh, kind of tied <laughs> on a little bit. That explains your employee of the month, Ethan's bloated corpse over there. <laughs> Does it? That is, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how these video stores work. So David, as, as, you, as you and I both know, the Punch Mountain is an all-action movie video store. And we spared no expense. We've ordered three copies of the movie Cliffhanger. You have to stock this in three different subsections of the store. What sections do you put it in? First things first, I'm starting the performer's wall. Uh, This is going to go in the Stallone category. I think Stallone, uh, you know, one of the few people in an action video store who deserves their own category. Uh, So that's going to be the first one. Second one's going to be Die Hard on a Blank. You know, as much. Oh, good, good call. That's what I was thinking. Okay, too, good, yeah. good, good, good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna fill that up before too long uh, with other stuff. So yeah, Die Hard on a blank. Uh, third one, I'm a little torn. I, I think, you know, what '90s movies. It does kind of have that '90s movies feel. Like, I don't know. That's kind of a cop out, but I'm I'm sticking with it. No, honestly, I mean, I I feel like I would put it in the same place. There could be like a little sub-micro section where it's like, uh, do better, John Litgow. (laughs) This might be the only movie in it, though, which wouldn't really make for a useful section. Another quick question, David, right before we get to the rankings. So, David, as we both know, if you see a celebrity on the street, the best way to get their attention is to loudly yell the name of one of their movies at them. Like, for example, if I saw Michael Rooker walking on the street, I would go, hey, Henry, portrait of a serial killer. What's up, man? I love your movies. Like, that's what I would yell at him. <laughs> sure. What movie title would you yell at Sylvester Stallone, and would it be Cliffhanger? <sighs> no, it wouldn't be Cliffhanger. Okay, my first thought, best thought, because obviously, if I think about it, if I take a second of thought, it would obviously be Rocky for me. But when you ask the question, and in my head, it was like, hey, blank. That blank was filled in by Copland. So, oh. <laughs> hey, Copland, what's up? I think... <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, this is not a real thing we're advising people to do, by the way. Uh, I think if you yell Copley, it's going to be like, a connoisseur. <laughs> like, you're going to start up a fast friendship, probably. See, David, you want to talk about a cop-out answer. The first thing that popped in my head was not a TV, uh, not a movie, but a TV show. I would yell, hey, Tulsa King. Wow. Because, 
<laughs> I think he's got a new show coming out. He does. Called Tulsa King. All right, David, now it's time to uncover Cliffhanger's place on the definitive action movie rankings, a.k.a. Punch Mountain itself. Now, let's remind people, we're going to stop doing this once this list gets too big. Oh, right yeah. now, the, the mountain currently at the top, Raid 2, followed by The Matrix, Hard Target, The Rock, Charlie's Angels 2019, Deadly Prey, and then down below, right at the gift store, at the bottom of the mountain is the movie Chappie. Where would you personally put this? If it's me, I'm putting it somewhere between Hard Target and The Rock, and I think that's even a generous answer, but... Uh, I think it was a little more fun than The Rock. Uh, I think there, it, it had more positives going for it uh, than The Rock. So I think if it's me, that's where I'd put it. Yeah, David, I also would put it above The Rock. And not to disparage The Rock, I just, this movie was, uh, you know, it, it was it was fun. It was light. It it just kept it moving. You know, there was some, some fun kills in it. And, and yeah, I, I think I enjoyed it a little bit more than I personally enjoyed The Rock. And maybe because of the the runtime the Rock tended to drag a little bit. However, The Rock did have an amazing Nicolas Cage performance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But David, it's not my opinion. It's not your opinion. It is the fact of the mound's ranking. So let's look up Punch Mound. Oh my God, there is an avalanche. That's on brand. Revealing. <laughs> oh my goodness, look at that. The name Cliffhanger is actually below The Rock and above Charlie's Angels 2019. Oh, okay. Again, look, you and I both placed it, but that's not where it ended up. Yeah. Because hey, the, the mountain speaks. I, I don't even feel compelled to argue. There's nothing to argue. It's uh, it's the mountain's gospel. Yep. Raid 2, The Matrix, Hard Target, The Rock, Cliffhanger, Charlie's Angels, the 2019 version, Deadly Prey and Chappie are the current definitive action movie rankings. David, you hear that horn play? Of course I do. I'm, I'm so familiar with it every week. Yeah, that's a horn calling us to action, David, because on this podcast, we talk a lot about fictional action heroes, but we also want to talk about real heroes taking action for vulnerable, underserved, or underrepresented communities. And this month, we are spotlighting Austin Mutual Aid. Austin Mutual Aid is a grassroots organization whose mission is to redistribute supplies, food, and more to those in need. Colder temperatures are upon us now, which is a very dangerous time for the unhoused population of any city and groups like uh, AMA work to keep people safe. After each episode this month, Punch Mountain will be making a small donation to Austin Mutual Aid. Also, for every review we get on iTunes, up to a certain amount, obviously, just in case any bots out there wanted to bankrupt us. And hey, if there's a good review, we'll probably read it on the air. And if you left a review somewhere else other than iTunes, just let us know and we'll check it out. For more information on Austin Mutual Aid or to donate directly to them, you can visit austinmutualaid.org. David, I obviously live in Austin, Texas, but if you listeners live elsewhere, I encourage you to seek out your own local groups that are local to your communities for opportunities to donate or volunteer. It does not have to be Austin Mutual Aid. Folks, don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Punch Mountain or drop us a line, punchmountain at gmail.com. MacBlakeComedy.com is your source for Mac stand-up. Next week, from 2022, this year, what? Directed by Dan Trachtenberg, it's Prey. Mac, you looking forward to Prey? I am, especially because it's not going to be deadly this time. We'll see you next week. Bye.